when I see too many young people are dying and we are not doing anything about it, that's wrong. Dr. Aaron Gupta wrote the book, The Preventable Epidemic, a frontline doctor's experience and recommendations to resolve America's opioid crisis. Dr. Gupta says after specializing in addiction for the last 15 years, the country must do more to train and incentivize physicians to go into addiction medicine, as well as promote medically assisted treatment for substance use disorder and treat the whole person because mental health and addiction go hand in hand. These people are going to need life. Majority of the patients, at least nine out of 10, will need medications for long term not only for addiction, but for mental health. Dr. Gupta joins me now with details on his new book and what he says we must all do to reverse overdoses in the U.S. Well, thank you, Dr. Gupta, so much for joining me today. The first thing I'd like to talk about before we get into, you know, the title of your book alone, The Preventable Epidemic. I mean, I feel that way. So many parents I know who are in the same boat that my family is in feel like this is unnecessary. All of this is unnecessary and could have been prevented, should have been prevented. And certainly now with the latest overdose numbers that we're seeing should be stopped in its tracks. So I I love the title of your book and I want to get into that. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your experience with addiction medicine. So I've been a primary care physician uh, since 1986. I was a deputy medical examiner for eight years in early 90s. And then I became a jail doctor for 11 years. So I've seen a lot of stuff that a regular physician do not see in their lifetime uh, from different angles. And uh, uh, as I was uh, relieved of the responsibility in 2006, I started wondering what is going on and what do I need to do? So I became interested in learning and became a member of American Society of Addiction Medicine. And they taught me a lot over the years. And after a few years passed around, I became confident in sharing my concerns and thoughts with other people who wanted to listen. I'd done over 100 presentations until about 2017. And I was asked a question by a, a senior friend of mine, a nurse at the hospital. She said, Dr. Gupta, when is all this going to end? And you would be shocked as to what I said as the answer was when everybody dies. I started crying. We're having a dinner in a restaurant and she looked at me and I said, we got to do something about it. So my focus then changed to why are people dying at such a high number? And as I presented more of my concerns, one of my friends said, you got to write a book. You got a very good message. So and I was like, I'm not ready to write a book. It's not my cup of tea. But I took up that challenge, and um, I am really, very glad and happy that the way the book turned out. Uh, It's really a preventable epidemic. This is CDC words. The disease is preventable. People died, retroactively were found to have. deaths were unintentional. That means nobody shot them or killed them or anything. And and people waitlisted for treatment have very high mortality. So CDC just two months ago reported 41 million people are at risk, 2.4 million people are in treatment, rest 39 million people have no access to care. The media keeps on showing the doom and gloom and they do not show people who are in treatment how well they're doing. I have hundreds and hundreds of patients over 16 years 
that are doing very well, back to work, improve education, better quality of life, go on vacations, have bank balances, new houses, new cars, go to church. And, and it's amazing. We, if we show these people on the street doing drugs or sitting in the basement doing drugs, that how well these people are doing, then they get interested in, in, in moving forward and getting help. Because there are effective treatments out there. There are just not enough people getting to them. And I think the first, I have said this for years, um, one of the main problems is that addiction has been treated outside of the medical system so often. Uh, a doctor, doctors get very little training on addiction. People who are not doctors, nurses, psycho- psychologists, things like that can get elect to get maybe get a little more training, but it really just doesn't happen, right? Yeah. So here's the problem. When I started researching in my book, I went to a government website called ACGME that controls the kind and quality of education that's going to be done in the medical schools. In the last 50 years, in the last 20 years, in the last one year, that program has not changed. There is no education in American medical schools or residency programs about addiction. I self-taught myself and I learned from ASM. And so only 1% of the providers in this country, doctors, nurses, and nurse practitioners, have the necessary credentials who are actively participating in taking care of 2.4 million people. How do we change that? I mean, that seems like an unsurmountable task to get more doctors or encourage more doctors to study this field of medicine and then to treat it within medical systems. So the medical community doctors have thousands of regulations made worse by ICD-10 electronic medical records, affordable care act, you name it. I mean, how doctors stand, sit, talk to the patient, chart, everything has regulations. And then they have underlying regulations how to audit the doctors. So doctors are working in very, very stressful conditions. Then in 1999, when CDC first time reported that 16,000 people have died of poisoning, the government, 106th government debated it for two years, how to handle this crisis crisis coming on. So if they would have changed the education curriculum in 99, then 20,000 doctors trained every year into 22 years, we would have 440,000 doctors that were fully trained by now and and, and could handle this situation. We only have 18,000 with limited knowledge. I have a very limited knowledge. I'm not formally trained to be an addiction doctor. So what they did instead is they said, The practicing doctors could take a small course, pass an exam, and then apply for an XDA number. I am in that category. Okay. But then I kept on getting more interested because I was getting more frustrated. But most doctors do not do that. They they take the exam. If they get the license, they say, this is not my cup of tea. I can't deal with this people with these kind of complicated situations. Mortality rate is high. There is no additional rewards. There is no reason for doctors to learn this stuff. So in 2006, when I started learning addiction, I was roadblocked by all the other people, the counselors, the therapists. And because they said, oh, we can, we can treat these people. I said, you cannot, you cannot talk people out of not smoking a cigarette or not having a drink or not doing drug because they're going to have a withdrawal and they don't have the high. They have to feel normal and better. For the first time last year, Health and Human Services Secretary declared officially, and I have the statement in my book, 
Suboxone, MAT, is life-saving in, 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 in this con lethal condition, but we still do not promote it. Right. And I think it's ha it goes back to the stigma, right? So there's all this stigma surrounding addiction in the first place where people see it as a character flaw or a moral weakness. And then they see something like Suboxone as you're treating it with, you're just giving them another drug. They already have a drug problem. Although we treat diabetes, we treat heart disease, we treat all kinds of medical conditions with medication. People don't always see it that way. Is that part of the problem, do you think? So the problem is there are three serious barriers in this mess. The first problem is the Harrison Narcotic Act of 2014. It was a narcotic tax act. It's said in the course of a professional career, a doctor can no longer serve as a barrier to a doctor and write another addictive drug for an addictive condition. And it said addiction is a moral failing and it's not treatable. In 1962, the Supreme Court reversed that and said, addiction is treatable. It's a chronic disease like any diabetes, hypertension, or any other condition. But the law enforcement and the insurance companies have not come in par with treating addictions in line with the other conditions. So a law and order approach has not worked for 100 years, and it has to change. The second problem is stigma towards the disease. It's very easy for me and you to say the stigma has to go away. How do we do it? We just keep on saying the same thing. Then they created an artificial stigma towards treatment. Okay, so in 2005, the buprenorphine, Suboxone, had a diversion control plan put in by the federal government and said, there is too much spoxone on the street. They're not looking at how many people are dying and they don't have access to care. As the death rate went up 10 to 15% from 1999 to 2017, the access to care only improved to one to 2%, one to 2% per year, even today. Now the death rates have gone up 30, 40, 50% in the last two years. And the access to care is still one to 2%. The third, the third thing I already said to you about the diversion control plan on, on, on this Suboxone is unnecessary. And the federal government even sued that company twice, $1.4 billion. The reason diversion occurs on Suboxone is if you, me, and everybody else who needs it can get through a doctor, through a pharmacy, then there is no diversion. Diversion is a symptom of lack of access to care. You're describing such a complex problem that involves so many shifts in social shifts in how we handle this, this whole issue, the whole disease of addiction, because you're right. I mean, this law and order hasn't worked. People don't get treatment and, you know, we lock them up, which is we've got them. Let's get them treatment. But that doesn't happen. They don't get treatment in prison. Um, most of the time, I would say most of the time, certainly in my state. And no, no, I was a jail doctor for 11 years. There was no treatment. It's only in the last two, three years that 10% of the jails and prisons are doing MAT. And if they come out of there, there is no MAT. They relapse. Right. Right. Because there's no support system. Even oftentimes, once they leave treatment, there's not that support system. And relapse is such a, a big issue. So um, if you look at, I was recently in a discussion with a group of people and I find out there are 14,000 inpatient rehab facilities in this country, 14,000. 
and roughly 1 million inpatient beds. Okay, 40 million, 41 million people at risk. We have a death rate going up like this, but these people who go there for 10, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 a week for inpatient treatment, they're gonna need outpatient doctors like me to provide Suboxone or whatever treatment they need. Otherwise they're gonna relapse again. So there is no good success rate being monitored on these inpatient facilities and they keep on opening more and more. What about insurance coverage? Because that's one thing insurance companies often dictate that someone gets to stay in a treatment center two days or 10 days, when obviously we know it takes months, if not years, for the brain to recover from some of these substances. So these people are going to need life. Majority of the patients, at least nine out of 10, will need medications for long term. Not only for addiction, but for mental health. The two conditions have to be diagnosed properly, treated properly, and patient has to be stable for two years before you can start thinking of cutting down. But people who come down to Suboxone, one or two milligrams, they are having very, very, very hard time trying to get off it because the withdrawal of Suboxone could be worse than the withdrawal of narcotics because people are feeling normal all the time. And then if you take that normality out, uh, or reduce it, they have a very high risk of relapse. So what are some practical steps you think this country could take today, like right now, to start reversing this trend? And we just saw the latest numbers that were through October of 2021, where overdose deaths are up 16% nationwide. We now lost more than 105,000 people. Uh, that's 290 a day. I mean, what are something we could do right now immediately that would start making a difference? So at the end of the book, I put a page how to contact the policymakers. So we need to reach Washington with your help and everybody else who's listening and say, we need to look at this mess. The harm reduction policies are on expansion, whether it's a Narcan, whether it is supplying clean needles and heroin to the people on the street. It's like saying, if I cross a red light, it's illegal, I'm gonna get a ticket. Providing clean needles and heroin is illegal. It's class one drug. And that's what the government is promoting by the government's money. So the harm reduction policies are necessary to me for a short period of time. Let's say from January 1st to June 30th, we're gonna provide everybody, make sure nobody dies, whatever it takes. But then June 30th or July 1st, we have to have all the 41 million people in treatment. That means they need to take out the limits, regulation, oversight that they put on the addiction doctors and teach addiction doctors, regular doctors addiction, and then change the medical school curriculum and the residency program so that these future doctors and the future of this country is not at risk. You know, one thing I noticed in the medical community that I'm in right now is that they screen for abuse. They screen for that when you go to your primary care physician but nobody is screening for addiction. Don't you think it's important that we screen everybody, whatever touch point that is, whether they go to the dentist, the doctor for addiction? The problem is the same. The doctors do not have training. They do not have that page in their curriculum, how to screen. The next step is screen and brief intervention. So if you don't learn how to screen, and you don't know what to do with the screen, and there are no people like addiction qualities to take care of that you can refer to. If you are a physician, regular physician, 
and you're going to send your patient to me, you're going to say, I'm not going to see this patient back. Okay. So it's, it's a cash 22. We first have to educate all the physicians in a short term, like say eight hour or 12 hour uh, course a year. I've been promoting that for 12, 13 years on my addiction platform. If I'm going to an addiction meeting, the only people that are allowed to attend that meeting is who are members of that addiction society. If I want to take a friend of mine, physician, and say, let's go there and maybe you will learn, they're not allowed to enter that room. Okay, so the regulations have gone very bad. I give an example. I've given talks on my dime and my time to hundreds of physicians at one time. Everybody's paying for the meal. Nobody's paying me for anything. So if I can share my views and concerns to hundreds of people, then why do the federal regulations limit and restrict that physicians cannot learn this stuff? Unless you pay a membership and, and all, all the nine yards. So these regulations are not useful. They're more damaging. Why are you so passionate about this? What, I mean, like you said, you, you're doing a lot of this on your own. You're talking to me on your own time today. Um, you know, you've written this book. You're, you're, you started a foundation to try to, you know, raise money to, to, call, to help facilitate change. Why are you so passionate about it, Dr. Yeah, Gupta? Because as a physician, our job, our, our vocation is to help people stay healthy, uh, live longer life, better quality of life, and probably not die. When I see too many young people are dying and we are not doing anything about it, that's wrong. So I'm giving back to the community, to my country, to my city where I'm at, and, and, and to everybody else. I did this research, I wrote this book, and I think we need to stop this stupidity. It can't go on forever. 10 11% of the US population is at stake that could evaporate uh, young people in the next decade or two if we don't do anything today. Right, well, it's already lowered the life expectancy in this country, you know, yeah. the number of overdose yeah, deaths. I know. And- I know, I've been watching that for five, six years, yes. Yeah, and it's mostly young people, and it's out, you know, surpassed the cause of death uh, by everything else, right? For young people, yes, I think that yes, is yes. the case. And I would just think that I know I'm outraged, you're outraged. We're, we're sitting here in our little corners of the world, calling for change, speaking about it, trying to make a difference. But there's so many parents who listen to my podcast. I mean, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of us now, you know, who've lost children. And I would just think at some point there has to be a tipping point where we see that change in Washington, where we see that change in the legal system. And I just wonder, what is it going to take? Well, it's going to take people who are dead. They can't protest. Families left behind. Nobody cares and listens and they are grieving. So if I start, I was on LinkedIn and in December, we had a little discussion about this, what I just said. And they shut me down for three weeks. I had to go back and argue with them and say, hey, I didn't do anything bad. We just, I'm a doctor. We're talking life and death. I, the exact same sentence that I just told you. So I'm, I'm back on LinkedIn. So there is a lot of stigma. There's a lot of fear. I have a fear. I could come down and then somebody could find fault and say, hey, this guy is talking too much. We don't want to hear him. They shut him down. I, I understand that risk. But we all have to stand up and ask questions. I'll, I'll give you an ex- answer a different way. Maybe before you were born, there was a condition started in the late 70s called HIV or AIDS now. I was new in this country. We would 
triple down like we do take care of this uh, patients with covid and and people are dying and for 5 10 years we didn't know what was happening till they come up with a proper diagnosis testing and haart treatment in 1996 the treatment came now the treatment has changed half a million people had died now 400 million people in treatment are doing very well yes in completely complete turnaround right complete, complete turnaround, turnaround right yeah in 2002 we have an effective medicine available and the death rates have gone up to a million. Why, why are we not able to do? So I asked, one of my slides in my presentation is, is there red tape? Is there lack of education, lack of uh, ability to, to provide care? All those things are there. There's no education. We don't have the desire to, uh, to, to treat. We, we don't have a mechanism to deliver. And there's unnecessary limits, regulations, and oversight. So let's talk about these limits, regulations, and oversight. So in the data 2000, they said, after you take an exam, exam and pass it and, and apply for an XTA number, you are limited to treat 30 patients per month for the first year. And you are under supervision by DEA and SAMHSA and all the law enforcement people. So if a doctor gets good in that field and they wish to continue to do that, then they could reapply. It takes another two, three months, and then your limits could be raised to about 100 patients per month. And that persisted till 2016. You look at the death rates going up from 16,000 to 30,000 to 40,000 to 50,000 to 70,000 in 17, when they changed, they said, okay, with certain criteria, doctors could go up to 275 patients per month with a lot more restrictions and regulations. And if you go over the limit still, you could get fined $10,000 per patient per month or even more punitive damages to the doctors. So which doctor would want to get into this field to help these people with who have serious mental issues, legal issues and addiction issues and financial issues and no insurance? So they didn't create any incentives to entice doctors into learning addiction and practicing addiction. In the last two, three years now, they have turned around and said, okay, we'll pay for your exam. We'll give you bonuses if the younger doctors have, have pending bills if they start treating addiction patients. But the infrastructure that takes, is called Vermont model from the state of Vermont. The infrastructure that it takes to take care of a holistic approach of the whole person from all these different angles, I cannot do it myself. My hospital, my county, my city, my state, my insurance companies, nobody comes to my rescue and say, hey, we'll do this, this for you. So you just keep on doing the medical portion and taking care of the addiction portion. I have to do all that myself and I don't have resources where I'm going to provide the resources. I try my best, but I think the community has to, to come together. Now, at some point I used to say it takes a village to, to raise a child. For a disturbed person, it's going to take tens of villages to, to save, a child, save a person. And everybody keeps on talking themselves and we not don't have any coordinated effort. Right. You're right. It's, it does take a coordinated effort and it takes treating addiction because also, as you know, addiction goes hand in hand with mental health issues. It does take treating the whole person and they mm -hmm. need more than just medically assisted treatment. They need more than they, they need that, but they need more than that. And we don't have medically assisted treatment for something like meth addiction. Yeah, so it, that problem has been there, meth and cocaine, before. So you have to have an acute intoxication and then a, a withdrawal problem 
for the government to do research and scientists to do research. So like marijuana doesn't have a treatment. It, it, the, the classic description used to be a motivational syndrome. We have a little bit of a joint and you get lazy and don't feel like doing anything. So now marijuana has become much more potent. You know, from 4% is like 20 to 25% potent. Just a totally different animal. Same thing. So if the research does not support that these conditions need a substitute medication like Suboxone, okay, or methadone, then there is no protocols. So if the numbers are small who are abusing it, the research dollars may not go into looking into it. But these people have most likely, in my mind, who are into serious stuff, have significant mental disorders. And so the mental disorder can be controlled by appropriate medications, but there is no standardization in the treatment. You can go to a doctor for anxiety and get a benzodiazepine. Uh, somebody could come to me and I may give an SSRI. Another person may give an antipsychotic medication. There is no measure. My blood pressure is this high. I'm going to bring it down. My sugar is so high. I'm going to bring it down with this medication. This is educated guesswork and, and it's 50-50. And, and, and so with the patients you've had that have gone on to be success stories, so to speak, um, who've remained in recovery, what has, has it been different for each person? What worked for them? Or has it been, is there sort of a formula that you There is no cookie cutter thing. You have to feel the pain and suffering of the person, what's going through. I, I wrote a chapter of one of my patients and um, she uh, got onto a wrong track at a very young age by a family member. And then she stayed in that space for like 20 some years and she had bypass surgery, infected valve two times. Uh, she came to me a couple of years ago. We cleaned her up and she got married brave, but she married an alcoholic. And then, you know, the relationship didn't work very well. And she ended up having a divorce. And then she relapsed and she had to have a third surgery. And the surgeon said, this is the last time. If you do it again, there would be no chance. Unfortunately, as my book was coming out, she relapsed again. So she's in that fourth cycle of this mess. So each person has to be dealt with in a specific way. You have to spend time. You have to know what went on. Uh, And once they're stable, these people are so beautiful. My nicest patients are my patients that have been uh, recovered and stay in remission. And, And the common thing is, doc will do anything for you. So it's a wrong perception that an addicted patient is the worst patient. It's an alcoholic, it's a junkie. They just have been all these years and, and mistreated. So nobody has talked to them nicely. Right. And, and they're not always treated as a human being, just that as word junkie. Being, yes. Just that yes. word junkie. Yes. No one is junk, yeah. right? So yeah. it's just so they these are human beings. I always think these are obviously someone's daughter, you know, son. And a lot of times there's some personality yeah. traits like sensitivity. Um, the world is a very harsh place and there's anxiety or depression or bipolar or other issues that they're self-medicating. There's a predisposition, genetic predisposition mm-hmm. um, for addiction. I mean, there's just so many factors that go into play, environment. In the last podcast I did about a couple of weeks ago, we had this discussion about genetics and stuff. And the genetics is easy to overplay by the medical community, by the media, but it's really the environment that plays a bigger role. And when you say that, what do you mean? What in the environment? Trauma? Well, trauma, physical, financial, sexual, 
a child's perception as they're growing up, what they feel is in the environment that may, even though it's a happy family uh, or a, a divorce situation, but if, if, if things are on a wrong track for a child as the child is growing up, we don't know what they're feeling inside. They're not going to share with you. So it's, it's a perception of the reality and the perception as the child is growing up that causes a big problem. Now, I faced a question in, around Christmas when my book was coming out. And one of my ex-employees ran into me and she says, I have this ninth grade student at my house. Both parents are dead. And there was friends with my kids and I could not let that kid on the street. And so she said, Doc, did you think about what's going to happen to these people? And I said, oh, my God, I don't treat kids. So I never thought about it in my book. But it's a next disaster waiting to happen in the next few years. I'm not saying that they're not being taken care of by foster parents or grandparents or uncles and aunts. But once a kid has lost a a parents or both they are not incapacitated or out of the equation, they don't have the same love and affection that they would have had from their own parents. And I think that uh, the idea that kids can experiment or you can't just try something one time now, even with the fentanyl. No, no, the drug no. It's, it's a, yeah, yeah. You're done. You're done. Right. Those days are gone. So what's happened is the equation has changed. Now this, even not kids, even adults. I mean, right. marijuana is, is uh, fentanyl is coming in and anything from, from marijuana to heroin to cocaine and people are just dying like that. And so, yes, the days of experimenting either by a, a child or, or an adult, they're gone. Right. Cause all it can take is one time. Yes. Um, you have so much to share, so much knowledge to share all your years of experience. I hope everyone goes out and gets the book. We'll put a link in the show notes to the, to the, up to this podcast uh, on how to do that. And I just appreciate you sharing the story and what you've learned and, and things that you need to, that you want to see change. Do you have anything else for our audience? Any kind of parting wisdom that you'd like to share? I, I think that once people are in treatment, their treatment should not be interrupted if they are in the hospital or nursing home or in the jail or vice versa. And we need to improve access to care uh, uh, for everybody that needs help. And I strategically believe this should be the biggest humanitarian peace project in modern times. And I'm a Rotarian and we do service about self and it just doesn't matter who you are, you do the right thing. And um, I'm pushing Rotary International to take this as a cause. I've not been very successful in the last three years. Uh, I had talked to Secretary John Hayko just before COVID happened. We're discussing then COVID happened and everything got put on a back burner. I am also a member of the Rotary Addiction Prevention Action Group. On that platform, I promote uh, as a chairperson to improve access to medication-assisted treatment in North America. My goal is that we need to reverse the trend of overdose deaths like this and start bringing them down and then so that our children and grandchildren are not at risk. And everyone, everyone should be concerned about their children and grandchildren. So I was in a, in a, in a federal meeting uh, about 10 days ago, uh, Tim Ryan and a movie actor from uh, Dopsick uh, uh, was there. And I I put three questions on the side. So my basic questions were, there are 41 million people that are at risk. 1% of the providers have the necessary license. Why are addiction not being taught in the American medical schools? Why do we need limits, regulations, and oversight? I may not have 
a solution to the fentanyl coming illegally into the country and killing these people. And instead of putting the law enforcement to see if doctors are doing the right stuff and, uh, and appropriate stuff or not, let's re-engage the law enforcement towards the street drugs. I mean, in every town, everybody knows where this stuff is available. These people are very powerful. Those are the kind of issues, and I think we all need to stand up. And um, instead of talking to ourselves on social media, we need to uh, bring it to the forefront. So hopefully with my book, I have good reviews, and, and we'll go from there. I'm so glad that you asked me to join you to share my views. And um, I really feel your pain and, and lots of other people's pain. I mean, I have patients say, I've lost 50 friends and family members of mine in this mess. Yeah, and it just it continues and it just grows. That's what makes me so yeah. angry. Yeah. And yes. you're, you're right. We just, we need to make sure people are getting care when they need it. And, and there, 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 there are ways to do that. And you outline that in your book. And, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Grieving Out Loud with me, your host, Angela Kenneke. Connect with us online at emilyshope.foundation. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving us a positive review. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage.